Welcome to episode 66 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we have a very special guest with us, Jessica Ma, founder of Indonero. So, Jason, what's the backstory on how we met Jessica? Well, we interviewed Jessica back in December in episode 26, um, and I can't remember how I f- uh, first heard of uh, Jessica or Indonero. I think I just stumbled across her blog. I think one of her blog posts made it on the Hacker News or something. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, and so we interviewed her, and we talked a lot about uh, her background, and, and sh- you know, she's, she was 19 at the time. You're what, 20 now, Jessica? Yeah, 20 now. So 20. So she was 19 and she was in her senior year at Berkeley. And we talked a lot about how she started college early and was doing a startup while still in college. And um, I think we should do, though, is probably before we get into what's going on now is, is just cover a little bit of that. So for any new listeners who haven't listened to that um, episode 26, we can you know, at least people know what we're talking about. Yeah, so Jessica, now you're a co-founder of Indonero, which is, in simple terms, the mint uh, for small businesses? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, the idea is that most businesses don't do any accounting of any sort. Like, they don't use QuickBooks. Many of them don't even have an accountant. And we wanted to make it really easy for them to manage their money. And back when we talked in December, it was a really raw product, lots of bugs. Um, Justin signed up and we had a bunch of bugs and really terrible support times. And since then, like so much has changed. We joined Y Combinator in the spring. We went full time on the product in late May. And we've been signing up thousands of businesses ever since. We're ramen profitable. We raised over a million dollars in angel money. Um, just over the past few weeks, and and just so much has changed since we last spoke. Great. So what we want to do uh, in this interview is 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 just cover that whole process in, in some more detail because at the time I was just impressed that you were starting a company at such a young age at nineteen while still in school. It wasn't like you were even waiting until you graduated. You were still in school. You know, take you know taking a full load at a very tough school at, at Berkeley. Like Berkeley, I mean, that's not like you're you know can half ass it at a school like that. So and you you're a you're a you graduated as a CS major, right? Yeah. Right. So that's yeah, that's 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 some serious uh, you know time to to uh, do a degree like that. So okay, let's 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 start from there then. So when we talked to you last you, in December, you had an, a very early version of the product, and I remember one thing that you were doing at the time is that you had decided to forego the whole freemium concept. That you felt that. If you went freemium, you'd have a lot of free customers that would take up a lot of, of resources from you in terms of uh, just purely from the customer support side. And you felt like that was something you wouldn't really be able to do. And I, I'm curious to find out, first of all, how did that work out? So in hindsight, God, so many of my views are different now. Um, we are a freemium product right now, and okay. it's been really good to make it well, to offer a free plan because we've discovered just so many gaping holes in our funnel and where people are dropping off. So instead of having a potentially high immediate cancellation rate before, um, now we're discovering just a whole new different reasons for why people might not be able to use us. Like, for example, we meet people every day who say, oh, this is a really cool idea, but I use the credit union of Kansas City and you guys don't support that. 
And those are frequent problems that we're facing now. And, um, and so that's why I think it's, it's been really helpful for us to switch on a free plan. Okay. So how, well, okay. First of all, how long did you try the non-free plan approach before you decided to go free? Um, we started in July and then we turned on a free plan in, in May. So long so this time. Is ju- so this is July of 2009. You turned off the free plan. We interview you, interviewed you in December of 2009, right? Correct. And so um, then you went all the way to May from, so you went about six months or so in the, non, in the non-free plan approach. And what made you change your mind? Was that, a, was that, was that because of Y Combinator, uh, because of advice you were given by Paul Graham and, and people involved in the program? Or was this something you figured out on your own? Or how'd that, go, how'd that mindset change? Yeah, uh, I, think, I think that before we were really concerned about raking up our, our costs for data aggregation because sure. it's pretty expensive for us. And um, and like as college students, we can't really afford it. But now that we have over a million dollars sitting in the bank and we knew that we'd have leeway money, we thought that we could grow this and I guess not worry about those problems as much. Right, because once you've raised money, you can you can not worry about this. So if you were still bootstrapping, if you hadn't been able to raise venture funding or angel funding, then it would it might be a different approach for you, right? It might be, but... We've been able to make freemium work to a certain extent because we are seeing people upgrade and we are making money on it. And um, and so I'd say maybe if we were a consumer play, like let's say we were Pandora or another consumer site, it'd probably be harder to get people to pay. But people expect to pay for a product like ours. So turning on a free plan isn't entirely a bad idea. Right. So you think so they think the freemium model for consumers and for businesses works differently. Um, businesses expect to pay, so might as well get them and figure out what their problems are because you're you're not gonna get a lot of freeloading businesses, I guess. Is that's that's the difference. Right. In the long run they'll probably pay. And like something else I've just discovered is that advice is often right, but for the wrong reasons. So people say, Oh, you should turn on a free plan because of X, Y, and C reasons mm-hmm. when in reality there's just a different um, there are different reasons for why it made sense for us. The other thing is, is that you can limit it. I mean, it's, uh, your business, you're limiting it by the 50 monthly transactions for the free account, which means you can get a very clear idea of what your costs are to have, I don't know, 100,000 free people. And um, <clears throat> that's probably extremely cheap uh, advertising, as it were. Yeah, it's, uh, we're not paying that much money for a lead. Right. But... Back then, when we were in college, if we had the number of users we have now, and and if all of them were on the free plan, then God, our costs would be so high right now. Right, right. Okay, so let's take us back into December. Um, you know what what happened? You know between December and you applying for the Y Combinator spot. I'll admit, I was pretty skeptical of Y Combinator at first, I thought, why would I give up 6% of my company for $17,000? That's absurd. But I started talking to a bunch of YC alum and these people have been working on their companies long before they even applied to Y Combinator. And 
many of them didn't need the money. So I asked myself, well, a bunch of smart people are doing this. They're clearly rational people. Why else would they do this? So I looked into it deeper and I found um, that YC is not just good network and good advice, but it's like the best insurance you could buy. Like for us, it ensured that we get funded at a very good valuation. It ensured that we wouldn't get screwed by investors trying to lowball us. It, um, it was really good insurance in hindsight. And there are a bunch of other reasons for why it made sense for us. But I was one of the earlier people to write it off. What was the percentage that you had to give up? Um, they give, uh, I'd say the average is 6 to 7%. Oh, okay. And they typically um, offer, I think, between 15 to 20K for a startup. Okay. Um, so it's like really not that much for a lot of equity. Yeah. I mean, the 6%, you could almost chalk up to marketing. Right. I mean, just for this, just with your fact that you are a YC back company, you get sort of this credibility and this sort of uh, interest or focus on you that you wouldn't get otherwise. That would probably worth 6%, not to mention the advice oh, and the connections and everything else. I mean, if you're a YC company, it's, it's, it's sort of like now it's like, why would you say go to Harvard versus go to a decent state school? Now, right. I mean, you could probably go to a decent state school and get just as good of an education. I mean, really, education now comes down to, you know, are you taking hard classes and are you really trying to learn something or are you just screwing off and, and, and cramming at the last minute? But if you walk out of Harvard, everybody treats you differently. Right. That's I mean, you have completely correct, especially have, in the investor world for for Y Combinator. Like I can give a very specific example. Mm -hmm. I have one friend who took money from a VC firm at a very early stage. He got 300K at, I think, a 1.2 million pre-money valuation. Okay. Um, so that sounds like you know a pretty good deal. And I asked him why not do Y Combinator first. And he said, because my valuation was lower. And I immediately thought, that's really bad rationality because, first of all, I'm giving up let's say I'm giving up between six and 7% of my company. Um, right. In hindsight, after having raised a million dollars from investors, I've been able to raise much more money on my own with like a much higher valuation, like, like easily three X what I would have gotten not doing YC. Yeah. That's so, what actually I was going to say. I was going to, I was just going to say it's probably two to four times. It's a multiplier, probably two to four times would be yeah. my guess. If you're so the same people, the same people with the same ideas, with the same product, um, coming out of YC versus not, you're probably two to four times more likely to succeed. I would think just simply because you're going to be given that credibility. You're going to get that extra attention. You're going to get that. Um, I don't know that extra level of vetting by the press. You're so, it's so easy to get ignored and not to be taken seriously, and it, it's hard to get attention, and, and, and um, that's what's really important in the early stages, and that's what YC, what's one of the key benefits of, of YC. So, Jason, that's, that's supposedly the great secret of taking on investment and giving up equity, mm -hmm. is that each piece of equity that you give up, uh, essentially, it's not like you're giving away something, it's like you're getting something because it brings more value to your company. So this, this deal is a perfect deal because clearly it's brought a lot of value to the company and it's, it's helped. And that's how you know that you should cut a deal. Yeah, see, I, I am very skeptical of that when it comes to normal VCs. 
I, I you know, I hear that over and over, but oh, we bring so much value. I just, I'm not, I've not impressed with the VC community in general, and I'm not, imp- I, I'm not convinced of that. Oh, we'll take thirty percent. We're going to cram with all these these you know hard ass terms at, on you, and we're going to you know, it just, I don't know. I, I think it's it's most of that. Most of that stuff is sort of self-serving. I'm just not convinced of it, and I'm sure I think there it's are completely self-serving. Um, and a bunch of YC people will agree with that. Like I was talking to some YC alum last night about their latest round of financing, and um, they told me that they're talking to like these were very well-known A-list investors who you would know, and they basically said that they wanted a greater percent of this company because. If they have a board member on the company, they're putting in time, they deserve more equity. But in reality, it's like the company doesn't like they don't have to do this for the VC. And mm-hmm. it's like the VC is trying to justify their own existence. And and YC companies know this and they're talking to each other about it. And so I think it's really it's going to be very interesting how this plays out over the next 12 to 24 months. Yeah, I, I think for the for this web space, for all these you know small web companies that are starting up, or mobile companies, you know, essentially the YC category of, of company. I mean, I, I I think the VCs are something that they should put off as long as possible. And I think one thing that Paul Graham is doing is he's just calling bullshit on the whole VC model, especially when it comes to the, this category of company. And I, I you know. I, Paul Graham strikes me as like one of the good guys. He and and um, was Jessica Livingston, Livingston, and um, what was it? Robert Morris is that the third? Yeah, Robert Morris and um, Harge just joined Y Combinator, and Alexis is now ambassador to the East, and right, right. and um, they've just seen so many companies go through it that they know um, what like how the better investors look and how they interact with their portfolio companies. They hear everything. So that's why they're, they're so good at playing good cop, bad cop. And yeah. And, 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 but you know, he, it, it, they're not trying to like get a, a huge chunk of, of, of a company, right? I mean, they're like 6%. It's standard. They're giving you just enough money, depending on how many, you know, founders you have basically, right? You have two or three that might give you a little more if you have three, right? It's just sort of like graduate level stipend living. And, you know, it's sort of a standard thing, and and they seem like they create a lot of value. They actually create a lot of value, and, and uh, they don't ask for thirty percent of the company, and they don't ask for all this stuff. And I don't know. I I I, I totally get you know why Paul Graham is doing what he's doing and why he thinks what he thinks. It, it makes perfect sense to me. Everything, most everything he's written on, on on this stuff is makes a lot of sense to me. So okay, well, you 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 when you when was the application period? Because you were part of the winter YC or summer YC? Summer YC. It just ended last week. Okay, that's right. That's right. Summer, that's right. Because you had to have the demo day. So oh. you were applying probably not too long after you talked with us. Is that right? Yeah, I think we put in our application um, around like late February or early March. And then we had our interview um, like the first week of April. And... And then the session started on June first. No, no. Was there was Y Combinator the only incubator program you applied to, or did you apply to like Capital Factory and TechStars and some of the other well-known competitors to YC? We applied to Y Combinator and TechStars only. Okay. And um, at first, I was actually a bigger fan of TechStars. I 
Um, my co-founder and I flew out to Boulder. We met David Cohen about a year and a half ago, and we loved those guys. And mm-hmm. we thought, all right, Techstars is it. And then one of my posts got rated really highly on Hacker News. So Paul Graham invited me to a dinner and thought, wow, like, why Combinator's the shit? Mm-hmm. So we applied to both and we got into both. And it was very difficult to choose Y Combinator. And, you know, it's like getting into Harvard, Stanford, you know what I mean? I mean, it's sort of like, I don't think you're going to go wrong <laughs> and no one's going to cry. No one's going to feel bad if you get one or the other. <laughs> it's like, I think even if you chose to go with Techstars, we'd say, oh, this was the perfect choice. Like, yeah, like better than Y Combinator anyway. Like, so no matter what, I justify my decision somehow. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think that's right. So, well, tell us a little bit about the um, the interview. With why why commenters renowned for their like what their ten minute interview or something like that or fifteen minute interview, and uh, it's, it's usually kind of interesting because it, the way the way I've read about it in the past, it sounded like a um, more like just sort of a general discussion that you oh, show a little bit. Oh, it's discussion. Um, it was really fun. We just met all the partners and we talked about the business and our plans for the future. And we talked about um, our existing users and what they liked and what they didn't like. And and it was just really informal and fun and precisely how the other alum had described it before. Right. And how long it, how long did it was it before you were um, informed that you had been accepted? <laughs> it was like seven hours oh wow nice so you didn't really have to sweat it out too long that's great <laughs> oh it's really fast did, no what now with with tech stars were you had you already found out that you'd gotten a tech stars or what was the status with with them um tech stars was slightly different you get into like the finals or the semifinals, i think okay. and we applied last year and we didn't even make it to the final round Okay. And then this year we got an email saying, "Oh, you got you made it into the final round." And then, and then I think um, we had follow up interviews, like in person interview, kind of like what Y Combinator does. And then we got in um, the now, same day. Okay, so you got okay. Now, was were you accepted before or after you were accepted at Y Combinator? This is a really funny story. We actually woke up at eight a.m. Um, to drive down to Mountain View and meet the YC partners for our interview. And our interview was at like 9.30 in the morning. And right. then interview ends at like 10. And then um, we yeah, drive It's at 9.30. The interview ends at like 9.35. <laughs> well, I mean, it technically like went for 10 minutes, but you hang out afterwards to talk to alum. Right. And right. so my co-founder and I drove up to SFO and we met David Cohen, um, who's the head of Techstars at the airport. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we talked for like maybe 45 minutes and we found out then that we got into tech stars and I told him that we just got, we just met him after our YC interview. And so he listed out the reasons to do tech stars instead mm-hmm. of Y Combinator. Mm-hmm. And then like a few hours later, we got into Y Combinator. So it all happened on the same day. What, what were his reasons for picking tech stars over Y Combinator? Um, more intimate, um, better mentor support, um, very valid reasons. <laughs> Techstars is a mentor-driven network, whereas Y Combinator is an alum-driven network. Okay. And um, they're just different approaches. Like Techstars is really hands-on, really intimate. YC, it's more like we'll let you run your business. We're hands-off, and 
if you want help, we'll give you help, but we're not going to bug you too much about it. They're not going to micromanage at all. Yeah, precisely. And I thought both approaches were great. It's like going to a state school where they're completely hands-off versus private school where they'll try to do much more to ensure that each and every person succeeds really well. Mm -hmm. That's how we thought about it. Um, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I, and, and, and that probably really depends on the personality of the company, right? I mean, if you're a more independent and you're like, look, we know what we want to do. I don't really want to have to take a lot of unsolicited advice unless I have questions, whereas other people might be much more looking for someone to lead them and give them a lot of uh, direction. So, Yeah, that's, that's correct. We also thought, like Techstars, we get a lot of individual attention. Mm-hmm. And with YC, we thought, wow, there, like, you know, there are a lot of great companies coming out of this, and there are also like not so great companies coming out of it. And so we looked into that a little more closely, and and decided that YC is pretty much only as good as how much work you put into the program, right? And um, whereas TechStars, they'll really make sure that you make the most out of it because you have to. Um, <sighs> Right. Now, they, no, Techstars probably doesn't have as many companies. Is that right? I mean, there were like 10, whereas YC is more like 25 or something per class? Or what What are the numbers? It's different every batch. Techstars is consistently 10. Okay. Whereas Y Combinator, it depends on how many they like. So, for example, they interview about 80 or 90 per batch. And mm-hmm. they'll let in as few as 5 or 10 if they don't like anyone. And they'll take in all of you if if they actually like everyone. What's it, what's it like living the Y Combinator life? But like, what, what do you do on a day-to-day basis? Um, so for six out of seven days a week, you work out of your living room and you build product and talk to customers. That's it. And then for every Tuesday, you, or this is what we did, we would go to office hours, talk to Paul about our problems and say here, like, here's what we're trying to do, help us out. And then there's the dinner where you hang out with everyone else in your class and you have dinner and a speaker comes in and that takes up the entire night. So it's only one day per week. No, we're office hours Tuesday for everybody. I mean, cause I would think for, for, for Paul Graham, it would be pretty crazy to have every company come and talk to him on the same day, just trying to keep everything straight. Like what problems everybody was having. <laughs> he actually tries to consolidate them. Like maybe two, like I'd say about two days a week. He just, opens up office hours and and just consolidates them into a few sessions. So are you are you 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 say okay we're scheduled for ten thirty to eleven to talk to him or does everyone just stand outside his door kind of waiting to get in like you do in college when you're trying to talk to a professor? No, nah, you book it. Okay. Yep. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right. That's that's kind of funny. So and then you did the the those those dinners which are well known. So the the program what runs about what, ten weeks or something? Yeah, the program runs about 10 weeks, and everything leads up to demo day. Mm-hmm. Have traffic, have a good product, have paying customers, all before demo day. And so we were really focused on that. And what happened to us was really interesting. We were getting so much interest before demo day that we just raised like 600 k before demo day. Wow. Um, which is kind of funny because demo day originally was meant to help you raise money. But in our case, it was like the forcing function to get the first investors to commit. 
Right, because they knew that a bunch more were going to be coming and taking a look at you. Yeah, and that's precisely what happened. Like, we ended up turning down like a bunch of money after demo day because we just didn't need it. And um, it's fantastic. Yeah, why Combinator straight? <laughs> so, you know, in terms of raising the money, you're sitting in your apartment building the product. I mean, how how are these investors finding you? Were they just reading about you on, I don't know, your blog or through Hacker News? I mean, how are, how are they finding you and how do these conversations start? That part's also really interesting. Um, so Y Combinator hooks you up with lots of people, great connections. Everyone knows that. And Oh, Jessica, I want to say one thing real quick first. You know, it's, fun, it's funny because you, you say it's a great story because it's what's interesting is like, I, I don't know about Justin, but there's there's – you know, we, we talk to people and there's these sort of like, then a miracle happens scenarios. We're like, oh, we're in a room building it, and all of a sudden we have 600K. I mean, <laughs> how does that happen, right? I mean, it it's doesn't. Like, it's I, like, that's really frustrating for me because I know back when we last chatted, I'm thinking, God, I've never raised money before. How am I going to do this? And now I know exactly how it pans out and it's not a straightforward process. Yeah, so it's really interesting to find that, right? So, okay, so I'll let you continue, but I just like, it was just like this, you know, then a miracle happens scenario. And so now we got to dig into it, find out. Okay, so you're sitting in your apartment, you're building your product, and let's hear about the, you know, how, the, how the, this miracle function actually works. Yeah, so we meet this guy named Kevin Harps. He's the founder and CEO of a company called Eventbrite.com. Mm-hmm. And we talked to him about our business. Um, and and the first thing he does is, all right, let's put together a slide deck and prepare to raise money. And I think, holy crap, like, like it's not even demo day yet. Why are we bothering to do this? And so he like helps us figure out our unit economics. And he's like, wow, you have a real business here. Let me introduce you to my other partners who I co-invest with. So he introduced me to a guy named Javed Kareem, who was one of the founders of YouTube. And... And so I met Javid, and Javid was like, wow, this is a really cool business. I'm really interested, and I'll invest. And then he dragged in his friend Keith, uh, Keith Rebois, who's, um, he was like early at PayPal, and now he's at Square. And he's like, all right, I'll invest. This is really cool, too. Um, and, then, and then the two of them got Kevin to invest. And then, and then after that, we started asking for more interest to people. And... and um, and I guess just having social proof from one person really helps. But I think the interesting part about this is that um, we were talking to Kevin Hartz before he decided to invest. And we were also talking to someone else named Jeremy Stoffelman, who was who's the CEO of a company called Yelp.com right now. And um, I was trying to get him to invest. And I thought, oh, my God, this guy is such a hard sell. And... I told him that I was talking to Kevin Hartz, and since both of them were moderately interested, they both got each other more excited to the point of committing. Right. So you can't just do it one by one. You have to have a bunch of people considering the deal at the same time. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a really important thing. Um, and here's where I'm going to bring out another one of my little soccer analogies that Justin loves or doesn't love. <laughs> okay, Justin. <laughs> so um, as I've mentioned on the show at different times, I, I'm a soccer player, and I've I started this sort of, I don't know, kind of loosely described as a semi-pro men's soccer team back about 10 years ago. And um, so when I first started the team, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of t- 
talked our talked my way into this really competitive league that's really hard to get into and you're supposed to be like a champion of these other amateur leagues before they even let you give you a spot and all this stuff and i kind of i got really lucky and i sort of um let's say exaggerated the quality of my team <laughs> Because I didn't really have a team, so to, sp- so to speak. I had a team in my mind that I was going to build. And um, so I had to go out and find players. And, you know, I figured, well, there's, there's got to be a lot of great players in L.A. It's a big, very big city. And I had a few good players that I knew and some teams that I'd played with. And I figured, well, we'll just go around and try and find some guys. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, what would happen is that, you know, you'd come across someone who was a great soccer player. They maybe had played professionally or something. And how do you get them to play on your team, right? I mean, you'd be like, hey, come on, play with their team. They're like, well, what's your team? You're like, well, we're a new team. You know, that, 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 that doesn't work, right? So what I end up doing is going and kind of talking to two or three, just get these initial con- conversations. And then I would use one versus the other, say, oh, we're talking to this guy, and we're talking to this other guy, and we're talking to this other guy. And, this, and each one of them were, each in, were individually awesome soccer players. So when I brought up their names or mentioned them and, and described their background, the, the other players that I was talking to got really excited, right? <laughs> and so, and then guess what? And you're just crossing your fingers on, you know, your, um, uh, at your first couple practices that those guys show up. Because if one of them shows up and the other ones don't show up, they're going to be like, so what's the deal? Where are these other guys you talked about, right? <laughs> so look what have it, you know, all of them showed up and they were all really excited because now – you know, you have this great soccer team with all of these all-star players and everybody's really excited to play with one another, right? Because they're used to being like one of the best guys and playing with players who aren't as good as them and being kind of frustrated. But it's the same thing you did, right? It's like, you know, it's kind of convincing them. Convince, you have to convince them that this is going to be worth their time. You know, these, these soccer players are, it's, it's like I'm convincing them to, to, to invest time. To commit, to, 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 to do this thing. And you're convincing these investors to... It, put their money into it. And it's sort of the same thing. And you just kind of, you kind of get these light conversations going with a couple. We're talking to this guy. We're talking to this person. We're talking to this investor. You don't actually have to get a commitment, but once you get enough of them and you, you say, well, we're talking to them and, and, you, and you don't have to say, well, they're going to invest. Just the fact that you're in conversations with these people is sometimes be enough to kind of establish, right? You said that social proof. Oh, absolutely. And so that, that helps us a lot. So does that work as an analogy, Justin? I think it's a great analogy. <laughs> or my it's, it's very good. This is this is like um, getting investment one hundred and one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I, I so I think that's really interesting how that worked out. Now I don't know if I missed this because I was too busy thinking of my next question. But how did you first start talking to the guy uh, Kevin from Eventbrite? We just got paired up with him through the Y Combinator network. Okay. Okay. So here's another miracle function. You just got paired up with this guy. Okay. So how does that work up? You get paired up. Did, does your, you, you go talk to Paul Graham and he says, I want you to talk to someone and I'm going to have you call him or have him call you. Or I mean, how does that happen? How do you just start talking to someone like that? So Y Combinator has something called angel day where you present in front of a bunch of angel investors and they choose who they want to work with. And we just got paired up randomly with Kevin Hart's, but some people get paired up with other entrepreneurs um, who are angel investors too. So it's completely based on who's interested in working with you. Right. And so, I think Techstars is similar. So Paul Graham just mentioned you guys thought you guys would be a good match for event for with Kevin. And just said, "Hey, Kevin, will you will you talk with uh, Jessica?" No, uh, Kevin uh, chose that uh, would rank. Us, like he'd say, all right, I want to talk to Indonero. I want to talk to other YC startup and other YC startup. 
Uh-huh. And then um, they would rank in order which ones they liked best. And then the YC partners would hide in the back room, pair everyone up like somehow. And, um, and then we were assigned. Okay, so that okay, so that's interesting, right? I mean, cause yeah. that's, that's a miracle. Fun. Okay, how does this even work, right? It kind of reminds me of medical school, uh, where I I, 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 I obviously didn't go to medical school, but I have, I have a number of friends who are doctors and went through the whole thing. And they, and the way it works, I guess, is you apply to medical schools, and the ones I think that you get accepted, you rank them, or, or, or you rank them on which ones you want to go to, and the one and the and the medical schools. Um, then we'll rank the candidates or something like that. It's like a matching process. And I can't remember, this might not be for medical school, it might be for like uh, residencies. I might be getting this backwards. So it's like after medical school when you say, oh, yeah, and in fact, I think that's right. I think when you say, okay, I want to do a residency, and if you get accepted some places, you rank them. You know, these are my top five programs, and the programs rank the individual candidates, and then they do try to do a matching that way. And um, so were you guys picking the, the angel investors that you knew of, or, or was it purely from the angels that ranked you guys? And that was it. It was just a one-sided ranking. Yeah, it was. Well, it was a one-sided ranking, and then the YC partners pick for you. And, of okay. course, if you don't like them, then you don't like them. So they sent out a list of all the other angel investors who put us on their list. Okay. And so I reached out to all of them, too. And... Um, and I think at least one of them ended up investing as well. Oh, okay. Wait, let me get this straight. So they matched you up with Kevin. You guys were like, okay, that's great. And they just, they had, there was a list that they gave you that these are other people you might want to talk to. Yeah. This is like a few weeks after, um, they gave us a list of other people who are interested in us. Oh, okay. And, okay. um, and so we reached out to all of them and try to convince them to invest. And it was really, it's a really interesting exercise because, by having an angel mentor, um, you could practice pitching on them. Like the goal was to get them to invest. And it was really funny because Kevin Hartz was one of the hardest to convince. I got, I think I got over 500K committed before he finally committed himself. And yet he was the one helping me convince the other angel investors to make their commitment. I wonder if there was some part of him that he knew he was going to invest anyway, but he wanted to see if he could get these other people to invest without him being the social proof. I, I was thinking the same thing. I was thinking that uh, that was his little game. Right. I, I mean, he's like, you know. I wouldn't mind if that was the case, but um, it was frustrating for me because, like, I really wanted him on board because he was the one helping me out the most. And if I couldn't get on the person who was helping me out the most, it, It'd be a little sad, but um, but now he's finally on board, and I'm really excited to have him as an angel investor. Yeah, you know, it um, it kind of reminds me of the process of kind of like leading the witness, you know. So if he's if he's thinking, okay, I, I I like this company, and I want to invest in it with some other smart people who I respect and uh, who's um, who I'd like to work with or invest with. But if I tell them I'm going to invest, they may end up just investing because I'm investing. But I don't want to sort of um, bias the statistics. You know, I don't want to lead the witness. I want each one of them, if they decide that they're really interested, then maybe they're, they're not just doing it because I'm convincing them, right? Because then in, in which case, if they're just, if all of his friends who are investing just because he's investing, then maybe everyone's just investing, including himself, simply because of him, in which case he could be making a mistake in judgment. And that way it's all based <laughs> off one mistake in judgment. But if they, other, if these other guys invest individually, um, 
independent of him, then it's it's inc- it's increasing the probability that it's a smart decision to invest in, in De Niro. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think it really helps to have that one passionate cheerleader to help you out with that. I'd be interested, curious. You had to, you had to ask him about that someday. <laughs> See if he in the back of his mind, what, what, if it, if that's just the way he likes to do it, right? That's great. Curious. I'll I'll just ask him. <laughs> curious. So okay. So you so when you're talking with these other angels on the and the angel list, did you call them up and say, hey, we want to pitch you, or is it kind of like we're going to meet them for coffee, we're going to talk a little bit about our business, you know, we're going to ask them a little about themselves, and just have it be a dialogue, and then just kind of through this conversation of the challenges that you're trying to overcome and the direction you want to go that you hope they get an understanding of your business and appreciation for the potential or is it literally like we're going to pitch these guys like the meeting it's a it's a meeting with a vc firm or something yeah well for us i wanted to figure out who would be good to work with so i would go to their office or meet over coffee and tell them all the problems we're having in the business and all the good stuff and what challenges we faced and I wanted their advice on how to solve it. So Kevin Hart's first thing was, okay, we're starting to think about raising money. We're thinking about demo day. How do we do this? And so we came to him mainly for the help. And then it was, we thought, okay, now that we're actually raising money, do you want to put money in? And he's like, no. So (laughs) (laughs) So that's really how it worked. And then we met like other people, like Brian Chesky from Airbnb introduced me to just bunch of angel investors and I meet them and I tell them about my problems and they would help out for maybe a week or two. And then I tell them, Hey, like I'm in the middle of an angel round. Do you want to invest? And since I already had like a few hours working with them, I know they're good. They know to trust me. It's informal and they're much more likely to commit. Right. Now, do you just come up, do you just come out, you know, and say straight out, look, do you want to invest or do you, or do you say it in a more sort of subtle way? Like, okay, so we're looking to, we're, we're trying to, um, I don't know, get, figure out what the interest is from the people we're talking to. Um, what are you thinking about our business? What do you think the, the possibilities of investment or, 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 the, or what is it that you need to see that would make you want to invest as an angel? I mean, how does that whole conversation go? So I actually tried that method a year ago and I couldn't get anyone to commit under okay. that argument. Which are the argument of, of being sort of subtle about it. Right. And like the market was terrible and I wasn't in Y Combinator. So I'm sure there are other things at play, but I tried that and it did not work. So this summer I took the opposite approach and like we were one of the more successful companies fundraising because we were not subtle at all. I would literally say, will you invest in Indonero? And, uh, and like, right. and it works. People will say yes or no. And if they say, give me time to think about it, I would say, you don't have time. I'd love for you to be in, but we need a decision now because we're closing our round. Right. And I wasn't lying. We were actually planning on closing our round at like $500,000. Okay. But then we were getting more interest. So we kept on expanding the run and we said, look, we're closing at 700K. We need you to commit by tonight or you're probably not gonna, we're probably not going to have room for you. And then so a bunch of people would then commit. And then it's like, crap, we're up to 800K now. All right, let's raise a million. 
Right. Now we're up to like one point something. I I got to run my numbers again. We've raised too much money. So you're at now 1.5. Is that what you end up raising? No, I think we, uh, my numbers are about 1.1 right now. Okay. But we got a bunch more people to commit money. And like, if we kept the same terms throughout the entire process, Mm -hmm. I'd have 2 million committed like $2 million more committed by the end of tonight. Okay. So, so, so you, because you were getting more money, you figure you, you, you'll take a little less, but you're just going to add better terms for you guys. Right. Is that, is yeah, that the idea is that we didn't want to sell more than X percent of our company. Sure. And when we started raising money, we said, all right, fine, we'll, we'll take more, but only if the terms are considerably better. Right. And we start, so we raise the terms and, it didn't phase the high quality investors, but the lower quality ones didn't like our higher terms, which I thought was completely interesting that less sophisticated investors, well, the crappy angel investors wouldn't invest at a higher price. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's back up here. Okay. Real quick. Now, first of all, how many investors did you have committed at any one time when sort of terms were changing? Was it like three or five or 10 or how many are we talking about? Um, I'd say about uh, about ten. Okay, and when you say lower quality investors, do you mean investors who weren't as experienced or hadn't had as much success in this category of investment? That they just were like they were wealthy and they were interested, or um, how would you describe the difference between sort of the high quality versus low quality investors, angel investors? This is purely stereotypical. Um, like, but basically, I thought low quality was fresh out of business school, no experience running their own business and um, managing like a seed fund or something like that. Whereas high quality was they ran their own company, they have experience. And I know 10 entrepreneurs they funded who will say that they're the best investors in town. Right. So that's, yeah, okay. So that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think from the higher quality investors, they're not looking at it purely from a, a valuation. They're like, look, okay, we got more high quality people in here. You guys are able to raise your numbers, which means that people, the high quality people are interested and committed to it. And those are the kind of things that make these small companies succeed. So, right. And not know, only uh, that, but the high quality ones are able to make independent decisions. Whereas the lower quality ones are just sheeps. They're following other investors. Right. And I didn't want them. Right. I, I think that's I think that makes a lot of sense. You know, we had um, a, a friend of our a friend of mine on the show a couple weeks ago, Travis Kalanick, who's an angel investor. And uh, he had a great um, he had a really interesting things to say about this whole process. He's invested in a bunch of these um, I don't know, these startups. And he said that uh, the best combination or one of his favorite combination is East Coast hustle with, and West Coast tech. And uh, he really likes the entrepreneurs that have what he calls the straight up hustlers, <laughs> you know, like, which what you're doing. Will you invest? Right. You're not out there kind of mincing words and being kind of like, oh, you know, we need money. It's just like, look, will you invest? You know, you're with you're confident, you're direct and um, and you're kind of you're kind of hustling. Right. I mean, you're going out, you're talking to all of you. You're being aggressive in raising money. You're going and talking to everyone on your list. You're not just kind of hiding in your room, writing code and pretending like that's somehow going to solve all your problems. Um, and it seems to me that Travis has a very good point about the fact that it needs to be this combination between the ability to create 
a valuable product, something that's going to solve problems for people um, or building something that people want, as Paul Graham likes to say, and being uh, an aggressive entrepreneur, going out uh, and speaking very directly um, with these people and say, look, you know, are you going to invest or not? We need it now. <laughs> you're in or you're out. <laughs> you know, because people respond to that. You know, and I think, I think these successful entrepreneurs understand that success in business requires people to get outside their comfort zone and, and be direct. And um, I, and when you are doing that with them, they're probably like, okay, you know, this, you know, she's got some moxie, right? She's 20 years old, she's young, um, but she's showing that she can, uh, you know, step up, and that probably proved something to them. I would say, yeah. If maybe. I was an if I was an investor, <laughs> that that would say that to me. You know, if you were just kind of, if you had a hard time coming out asking for the investment. Um, you know, I might be thinking, well, are they really going to be able to to raise money later, or or close deals? But if you're if you're if I could see that you're aggressive in closing the deal, I would give me more confidence in you. Yeah, I think that's an important skill to have if you're running a company. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, a couple. I had a kind of kind of couple of I think fun questions I'd like to ask, which is that in the Y Combinator, you know, class, everyone who comes in, I mean. Who, did you know who the companies were before things started? I mean, how did the whole thing start? Was there like an orientation day? Everybody shows up for a big, like, you know, presentation for Paul Graham and everybody gets to know everybody. I mean, how does that whole thing start? Yeah. Well, after you get in, you meet everyone in person. Okay. And, um, and there's like a founder mailing list. So you get to know people and, and you start hanging out every dinner and after dinner, we call upon each other for help. So, for example, I might ask some founders, hey, do, do any of you want to help me beta test my product? And all of us would just test each other's products out. So it was just a great community of helping each other out. Now, were any of these companies sort of like the the chosen ones you know like there's always like a golden child or one or two where you can say there's like yeah everybody's equal we're all promising startups but there's just one or two that everybody's looking at going yeah that's i think the- that's jessica well i'm wondering <laughs> i'm wondering i mean yeah i mean you guys end up raising a lot of money but i'm like coming i'm talking like the first week or two right and it, it, it you know because it kind of reminds me of like and i'll use one of my uh, sports analogies here justin <laughs> it's like you know all these guys are coming are like division one recruits for like some college, you know, football or basketball team or something. And they're all, you know, all Americans, but there's always this one player who's like, you know, top ranked in the nation. Everybody's like, yeah, that this is going to be the superstar. Was there that coming in? Not really. Everyone just thought, well, like I couldn't tell who was going to do well and who wasn't going to do well on day one because everyone looked the same. But as the summer keeps on going, you get a really quick sense of how hard your classmates are working and um, whether or not they're actually signing up users and making money. And, and it's just great peer pressure. Like every week you'd be like, so how's your week been? And you could tell if they say, oh, it's been all right. Or if they say, oh, it's been a great week. Like that means a lot. Right. So the focus just wasn't on like we added some new features. There, there was a certain, there's a lot of, there was that actual user customer revenue metric that people were already looking at even before launch or even before demo day. Yeah. Um, way before demo day, like after a company does a tech launch, there's a lot of pressure. Like, so 
do you guys just spike or are you guys getting sustaining traffic? And, and so we got asked that by everyone in like people who like weren't even in YC. So um, it's just a lot of peer pressure. Oh, wait, no, so you got written up by TechCrunch when? July 2nd, the summer. Okay, now how did you happen to get written up that early before Demo Day? I would, I would have thought that TechCrunch would have waited till some official, you know, coming out party or something. Nah, it's just better to launch earlier and get a huge inflow of users ASAP, so. Well, how did you get that, how did you get that write-up? Well, I mean, we just treated it as if we were any other company. Just, all right, we're ready to launch. Do you want to do an article? And um, and then that's just what happened. <laughs> well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, there was a, um, a, a, a guy, uh, is sort of a friend of a friend who I met, really interesting, really bright guy. He was one of these guys who was a, um, one of the youngest partners at Arthur Anderson back in the 90s before, crap, before Arthur Anderson went out of business, actually. But... One thing that's interesting of this story he told me, he said that, he's like, you don't ever want to be on a list. He's like, that's rule number one for me. And he said that, you know, when Arthur Anderson went down, there were some people who were sort of facilitating a move of a lot of the, P, the Arthur Anderson people over to some of the other consulting firms like Deloitte and Touche. And, he, and, and they said, you know, do you want to be on the list of people? And we'll, you know, we'll describe, you know, your background and your position and we'll give it to the senior management over at um, uh, Deloitte. And he's like, no, I don't want to be on the list. And they're like, what? Why are you going to be on the list? He's like, do not put me on a list. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it, you know, because once you're in a list, it really puts you sort of at a disadvantage. It kind of reminds me of like those shows like The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. It's like all the people who are, you know, if it's this Bachelorette, all the guys or whatever, they're at a complete disadvantage, right? She's picking right? Yeah. Well, of a group, you know, every YC company wants to be as unique as possible. So you notice like the two weeks leading up to demo day, a bunch of companies launch. Right. Um, Cause they don't want to be first known on that post demo day list and whatnot. So everyone tries to launch before demo day if possible. Right, because you're just getting, you're going to get lost in the noise. You're just one of a slew that everybody reads about on the day. Oh, you're one of those YC companies or tech star companies, and everybody reads that article, lists all ten, and then like, huh, okay, next. And you get lost in the noise, and you're right. You want to get as much attention as you can, and you don't. I, I think it's right. You don't don't be part of a list. <laughs> I always thought that was a really. I always thought that was a really clever thing. I'd never thought about that, and he gave me some other examples, but I I, I still think of that. I always remember that piece of advice. Um, so, okay, so you guys are picking up users and stuff. Now, were you guys starting to get some attention? Were you getting more attention be, from the other founders and, and from the Y Combinator partners because you guys were picking up steam early? Were they getting pretty excited, or, or how, was the, um, how was that working out? Well, they're, they're all excited. It's just every time someone launches, it's like a, a party at dinner, and um, mm-hmm. And like, no matter what, like, even if your company's having problems, they're just really supportive because they've seen everything, like hundreds of startups now. So, um, I don't know. I, I guess I don't mind bringing up my problems with them and I don't feel like I'd be judged in any way. Well, I think that I, I know a lot of people in, in, when I was in college, I thought a lot of people who did the best in school would actually go to office hours and ask the professors for help. <laughs> You know, I wish something as I, I never did. <laughs> it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like if you ask for help, you're, well, I mean, 
a more likely to get help and b you're just I think, more likely to succeed if you're going to ask for help. Right. Well, they they you know because yeah they were they they will have a lot of answers for you and they'll probably work a little harder for you. I mean you know obviously you know taking classes in college versus launching a startup are not quite the same thing, but you know right you're part of the reason you're in it in the Y Combinator program is to leverage those resources, right? So if you just don't take advantage of office hours and you don't contact the angel list that you've been given, you just kind of sit in your room and write code and just kind of go to dinner every once a week and hang out. I mean, that's probably what you don't want to do. Oh, absolutely. And we've been getting so much use out of them. Like every opportunity we could make use of YC, we don't hesitate to do that. Right. For so, getting good money's worth. So did, uh, was it, I think I thought it would be kind of a funny question. Was it at all clickish, like, you know, in high school or college? I'm like, you like, like, like you have the certain click that was like the, the, the bad boys or the good, you know, the, <laughs> you know, like it, they kind of start, people, they, like they, the companies themselves start separating into sort of subgroups by personality type. Did you ever see anything like that? Yeah, sort of. Um, like this is just personal opinion and... I'm sure Paul Graham would not advocate this, but I thought that the companies that sat closer to the front of the room were more likely to succeed. Um, (laughs) As in closer to the speaker, you know, like in college, the kids who sit in the front row are like really like better students. Right. And I see, I thought, wow, like why are all the companies sitting in the front row? And, and so um, I think it was just the more social aggressive founders would, just be in the front of the room and talking to speakers and to each other and the less social ones would just work on their laptop in the back or something. Right. So that's, it's sort of indicative of their whole approach, I guess, in a way, right? Because as we said, you know, as to succeed as an entrepreneur, you have to get out of your comfort zone and you have to, you know, be closing deals, right? You need to be closing customers or or closing rounds of investment or whatever and it's all sort of it's sort of similar right if you if you're just sort of like i'm just going to sit back here and, and and uh you know work on my laptop yeah it's like you're not getting good money's worth then yeah that's really interesting that's that's cool so again i guess you were probably the youngest there right i mean you were the you you've been the youngest you've probably been just known as the youngest no, nah, my co-founder right? was the youngest this time. Oh, oh really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's 19. Uh, he just turned 19, so he's. I think he was the youngest in our batch. So he's the punk kid. No. Like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Wait, no, uh, no that's, that's what I meant to ask you, too. So is there just two, two of you, two co-founders? Yeah, it was two co-founders, and then we brought on a few very early people who um, we also brought through the Y Combinator program. So are they co-founders? Are they early employees who have options or are they kind of, how, how does that, how does that work out? Yeah, all of the above since, I mean, they're coming in like relatively early. I thought, all right, well, should put them through the Y Combinator program. So they learn everything we're going through. And, and I think that was really, really fun for everyone. And so there's four of you now? Yeah. And all, were all of them sort of uh, classmates of yours at Berkeley? Yeah, we all met through college. And uh, did all of them graduate with you this past spring? No, one person um, worked at VMware, and we got him to quit his job. Okay, How, and he's he a little older? Yeah. 
Okay. A little older being like, what, like 22? <laughs> no, nah, he's actually, uh, he's the oldest guy on the team. He's 30 years old. Holy smoke. You know, I don't know. That's, <laughs> that's getting up there. You know, I hear you have your best coding years in your early 20s. <laughs> yeah, we were like, I was a little skeptical. I'm like, shit, like, can we really handle a 30 year old? But, but uh, he's, he's been really hard working. Yeah, that's well. I, I'm sh- that. That's there's things usually have a way of working themselves out. I mean, <laughs> um, let's. Uh, Justin, do you have any questions? I mean, I don't want to just totally hog all the bandwidth here. No, I'm. I'm really enjoying you uh, listening to you interview Jessica. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's a question I have for you. So you were in college at Berkeley, which is up in the in Northern California, near. I guess the Y Common. Where no, where was Y Common Air located? Where is it located exactly? Mountain View, California. And how far is that from Berkeley? It's about an hour. So did you guys all move get an apartment right in the Mountain View area, or did you, or did you just remain in Berkeley in the Berkeley area since you were familiar with the area? We got a four bedroom house in Mountain View because Paul pretty much makes everyone move to Mountain View, which is a really good thing. Okay. Yep. Now, it's a good thing because, you know, when you're meeting these other angels and everybody, it's like everybody lives in that area and you can meet them for coffee or dinner really quickly or you can get to office hours more easily. I mean, why, why would it make a difference as long as you're able to show up for the dinners and, and show up for office hours if you want? Being a five-minute drive or 10-minute bike ride or whatever to YC is so important. Like, I could book office hours and, like, for half an hour from now and just go over and have it not take up the entire day. And when you're raising money, everyone's down here or an SF and, um, and it's just better for getting work done. Like Berkeley, there's just so much stuff going on. And, um, like a lot of old college friends are still there. Like I wouldn't get nearly as much work done. Right. So I guess it probably allows you to make sort of a, a, a mental break, right. From college, like, okay, college is over. It was fun. No, this is another stage, right? Yeah, correct. A whole different routine, a whole different surroundings, um, right? So that, that makes sense. Now, you, so you guys are working out of this house together. How did that? How how productive was that for you? I mean, were you guys was there, was it hard to focus, or you know, was it uh, was it easy, or how did that how did that go? It's been immensely immensely productive. The fact that we could wake up walk over in our pajamas to our computer and work for 14 hours and then like go to sleep in the same house and not have to like step foot outside. It's the best idea ever. Right. <laughs> do, you, do you ever get like a little cabin fever? Like I got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> I'm going nuts. Because um, I, I, Justin and I both work at home and I don't know. I mean, Justin can speak for himself, but I know when it comes to like five or six o'clock, I have to get out of the house and, and go to the gym. Um, not only because I'm, I just feel like I need to exercise every day, but I just got to get out of the house. And a lot of times, at least, you know, three or four days a week, I have to, I have to, I don't like to eat lunch at home because I just feel like, ugh, you know, I've been here. I'm here all the time in this office. It's like, it just, even if I just go out for half or 45 minutes and go down the street and grab something quick, it gives me like this sort of, it just, it allows my mind to reset a little bit. I mean, do you, I mean, how did you feel about that? I mean, just in the same place all day long. Um, I mean, we all get out pretty often. Like, we go out to dinners and um, 
like we visit our YC classmates or in my case, I had to go out and fundraise. So I was not sitting in front of my computer a lot of the time. Okay. So you, so you were doing a lot of, you were getting out meeting people and talking a lot then. Okay. Yeah. But I try to abstract all that away from the rest of my team so they could focus on building the company. Now, were you, you know, so your background is in, um, or at least your, your degree is in computer science. And what, were, were you one of the lead developers or were you not really developing at this point? Or how, you know, how did that separation of um, division of labor go? Starting off, I was coding just as much as my co-founder was. But okay. since YC started, I've been talking to a, just a bunch of customers and designing um, the latest features in Photoshop mm-hmm. and not coding nearly as much. And like, I don't know how we would have closed our rounds so quickly if, if I had to like, actually code in the meanwhile. Right. Well, I, you know, I know that um, one of the uh, well, one of the uh, the fun, the companies that we that we interviewed a while back called Central Desktop. Um, Isaac and Arnold are the co-founders. They're good friends of mine. And uh, Isaac um, is the does the business side, and Arnold, while he is very capable of doing the business side, focused on the tech. But I think that one of the key reasons they were able to succeed is that they had both those sides covered, right? Because I think one thing that it can be a real challenge for startups is that especially if you get a couple of tech guys or a tech guy and a designer or whatever, or tech girl, (laughs) tech guy, whatever. But the thing is, is nobody's really doing the business stuff, right? You both want to code and design. You want to do the creative and you don't want to go out there and talk to people and do the scary, uncomfortable stuff, which sometimes it's not quite as fun and it can be frustrating early on because your product isn't that awesome and there is no proof that anyone else thinks it's awesome. So trying to get people to use it is difficult because nobody really cares. And so it can be kind of frustrating. Whereas if you're just writing code, you can just going to get lost and having fun and writing code. So I think that one of the key things is that if there isn't somebody who's a dedicated like business person, that somebody's got to either take the lead in doing that or the two non business people, the tech, designer, whatever, they have to decide, okay, how are we going to get this done? And I think I would bet, and I'd like to hear your opinion on this, that one of the key stumbling blocks for startups is being able to make that jump. We got to make that transition. Can we transition so that we're doing business stuff or are we not? Uh, I mean, fortunately for us, we never had to exactly make the jump. It was very clear from the get-go that I would try to abstract away all the business stuff away from my co-founder. So we never had to make that, that hard call. And I found fundraising actually to be a lot of fun because the way I think about it, we're meeting like potential advisors, people who really want to help us build this company and, and raising money was the least of our concerns that we could actually think about the good side to it. Right. Now, had you, when had you decided that you would do the business stuff? I mean, you decided this like a year ago? I mean, was when you first came up with the idea, was it something you said, well, when we get to the, we, when we actually release and we need to start in the business, that's something that I want, I'm interested in doing. And he's like, yeah, sure, fine, no problem. Or how, when was that figured out? Yeah, from day one, it was just, I mean, since I was the spokesperson for the company, it was pretty clear that, all right, I'd be CEO and 
all right, well, you're a better coder than I am. And like, you have more fun coding, so you should be the CTO. And so it fit in really well. So everybody was cool with that. For you, you were both really cool with that from the start. And then he was fine with that. He's like, yeah, that's no problem. Yeah. That's- and plus, he'd be a much better like CTO. Like, I can't code nearly as well as he can. So it's probably better this way. Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I think one thing that's important, too, is people is to know yourself, right? To know your strengths and be honest about what you're what you're better at and, 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 and not as strong at. And I think that also could be a stumbling block when people think they're a lot better at something than they're not, than they are, you know? I mean, if, for instance, you know, you thought, oh, like you didn't quite, you weren't able to acknowledge that, look, he's a better coder than me, right? Then that could have been a problem if you said, well, I want to make the, the key tough tech decisions. And he's like, look, <laughs> you know what you're talking about, right? I mean, that happens sometimes. People sometimes really don't have a very good idea of, they don't have a very accurate idea of what their strengths and weaknesses are. So the fact that you guys are able to suss that out early and are comfortable with what your strengths and weaknesses are. And, and sometimes your strengths and weaknesses, it's not just an innate thing. It's really just what you want to do, right? I mean, maybe he's a better coder just because he, wa- he wants to code more. He codes more, right? That's so probably becomes- true. It's, that's definitely true. Yeah. And you're, and you're like, well, I'm, you know, maybe I'm better at being the spokesperson or, or I'm, I'm better at raising money. And that may not necessarily be the case so much innate, innate, innately. It's just that you're willing to do it. You have more fun doing it. And the more you do it, the better um, you get, the more your confidence, the more confident you become, the, the more comfortable you are with it. And just the more you know about it. So anyway, I he'd probably that- be a great fundraiser, too, if he had as much practice as I have. So it goes both ways. Yeah, I think I mean my first company who uh, I, I I co-founded uh, called Renaissance Research Group. That was back in like 1994, <laughs> and my partner Phil Amon, who uh, Justin's met, and um, he, you know, he was a you know we were both you know technically strong, so it wasn't like well one of us is technical and one of us wasn't, and we were both able to we were both social, we were both confident socially, so we're both able to communicate and sell um and so it was kind of interesting because neither of us really took that took one role or the other it was just sort of a trade-off which was which is kind of different usually like it's different it's usually it's like well one's tech and one's business or whatever but it was kind of funny that you know in terms of who you know we, we each wrote you know, we each had subsystems of the code that we focused on. But then when it came to doing sales presentations, because we, we, we sold our first product to these big banks and trading firms and things. And I'd be like, I don't know, who do you want? You, you want to take Bank of America? He's like, yeah, I'll take that. I was like, all right, well, I'll take, you know, Susquehanna or I'll take ABN Amaro. And, you know, we would just kind of trade it off, you know, and um, which, is, which is kind of uh, different. But it also was difficult for us because I think, well, both of us were comfortable doing sales presentations, and both of us had had developed a certain level of of, of skill at it. Um, I think that it was it's sometimes it's hard to transition out of coding. Like when you're in the coding mindset, it's hard to get your butt up out of the chair and actually start focusing on the business stuff, right? And vice and, versa. And vice versa. Like I I don't know I don't know about you, but for me. I'm either in one mode. If I'm in the coding mode, I can barely send out an invoice. I can barely do any sort of non-coding oriented thing. And but then when I get out, when I get off out of the coding zone, you know, for like a day or two, and I'm just like taking care of all these like tasks, like oh, I got to run these errands, I got to open up this account, and I got to do this thing. Then it just it, sometimes it takes me days to get back into the coding zone. 
Like, I just can't. Because my wife's always like, Sandy's always like, well, why don't you just code the morning and then the afternoon, you, you know, you can just do this other stuff. And I was it like, yeah. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> makes total sense. That makes total sense. Go to lunch and then come back to this thing. It's like, yeah, I totally agree. But I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, me neither. And I don't think my co-founder can either. So I just make sure that no one else has to deal with that bullshit. Yeah. Sorry, this is a, a slightly different tangent, but I, I noticed that you have um, Olark on your site um, and that you're basically putting that out there so you can talk to people live. I'm just wondering uh, what kind of effect that has on revenue. It has a very serious effect because, um, A, we answer all the hesitations they have before signing up. For example, they might say, oh, do you have X feature and... Do you support Y and do you plan on doing Z in the next few months? And if we could answer it for them, then they'll be much more likely to sign up and pay us money. And we also figure out for our existing users why um, they're not converting and or why um, they like us or why they need us to add a new feature before staying with us. So Olark is very important, I think. Interesting. So, and, and Olark's, I mean, there's, there's many um, live support solutions, but you've, you're finding Olark a good one, yeah? Yeah, I think Olark is, I mean, I just use iChat as my Olark client, and it's, it's been great. Here's, a, here's what it might be an interesting question. I don't even know if, if you're going to have an answer for this, but were there any disappointments with the Y Combinator experience? Was there anything that you had come in and thought, oh, this is totally going to be the way it's going to work, and then just... You didn't get, there's at least one or two things that you thought you were going to get out of that just didn't happen. It's mainly expectations coming into the program. So, yeah. for example, maybe a year ago, I thought, oh, if we did YC, then everything would be easy. We're insured fundraising, like good angel investors, and we're insured this and that and traction. And no, you're not. Just because you get in the program doesn't actually mean anything. All it it, it really just gives you the opportunity to work your butt off to have great results. But um, like, as I mentioned before, it's only as effective as how much effort you put into the program. Right. Right. And these, yeah, I think that's, well, that's probably pretty much the same thing with life, right? <laughs> that's true. That. I mean, it's a I, mean I wish I had something more juicy, but I don't just, I don't mean to say that that wasn't a good answer. I just think that you could you could apply that to everything. You could say coming into college, right? Just because you get into a top university doesn't really mean much. I mean, it means something because if you graduate, you can always say, oh, I went to, you know, XYZ college. And people are like, oh, wow, I guess you must be really smart. But that if you do poorly or you, 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 in, in school, that doesn't really always help that much because that might open a door. But once people take a little closer look at you, they're like, oh, yeah, this person isn't really very good. <laughs> they Correct. don't know the thing, or they don't. Apparently, they're not. They're really willing to work very hard to get anything done. What's the percentage of um, the, the spread across the plans? If you could put a percentage on it, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't want to reveal like our funnel metrics or our conversion numbers, but I'd say, okay. like, I'll say we are profitable, and I will say that um, most of our users are on the small business plan, but. Um, but we're getting we're getting more and more people upgrading to the enterprise plan, which is pretty interesting. Did yeah. you know they said they talk about the speakers that come in? So you get a speaker what every you get one speaker every Tuesday night. Is that how it works? No, yeah. who gets brought in? Mm -hmm. 
they're they're all great and no but i mean awesome. is it one is it one every week or do you have like is like two or three that talk every tuesday night oh uh, just one. one one for dinner huh? who are some of the ones that you that, that were brought in that you thought were really you know really i don't know brought something new that you that you hadn't say read on hacker news that was like wow that's that's not something i really thought about much before i think i appreciated jeff ralston who um was the ceo of a company called lala that sold to apple and steve blank um who's just you know author and professor and they offered a perspective that you don't typically hear about as much when you're in the developer community. It's just, all right, tell a story and like apply storytelling to fundraising, apply storytelling to marketing and like all this stuff about talking to customers and about like phrasing things in terms of stories instead of features and um, all of this, like this different perspective that you wouldn't get as a developer, I thought was really helpful. So I bet coming up after the uh, after those Tuesday nights, you probably like you get extra fired up, right? Like you, <laughs> you probably like, it's probably hard to go to sleep that night, right? You come home and you're like, oh, okay, we got to do all this stuff. We got to. I mean, is that was that sort of the experience? I thought so. Tuesday night was like the highlight of the week. You work till Tuesday night so that you have something to brag about at dinner, which sounds terrible, but but sure. you want to have stuff done by Tuesday so you could say, oh, it was a great week when people ask you how your week was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I, the, one thing I make, the one thing about that, which I think makes a lot of sense, is that, okay, you know, if you want to run a marathon, you don't think, okay, I can run 24 miles. First, you think, okay, I'm going to run the first mile, right? And that's the way it works. You have 10 weeks, so what can we get done this first week? So you have these milestones, these sort of, these, this, this sort of you know, 10, 10 milestone you know, uh, 10 milestones that you got to hit. And you, they may not be laid out early, but you, you at least know, okay, we're going to get mentally, we're going to get to here because we, we want to be able to talk about this or we want to be able to show the YC partners what we've done. And I think that probably helps a lot, you know, because I would imagine from the partner's perspective and probably other founders, it's not just a matter of like, what kind of great code you wrote, like, oh, we built this new feature. I mean, that's part of it. But part of it is also, as you've talked about, it's about have you brought in more users or more customers or what have you done from the business side? So you kind of got to do both because if all you're talking about is code, I imagine you're going to start getting some um, questioning looks from the partners, right? Yeah. So, so that means that, you know, a week or two goes by and they're like, okay, great. So you got rid of some new code. Who have you talked to yet? You know, have you talked to any customers? So they're going to, you kind of like, you know, you got to jump over those hoops. You got to jump through those hoops during that week. So by the seventh or eighth week, you know, you probably sort of forced yourself to do the business development as well as do the code. So that seemed like that, by doing that, that probably is another side effect of, well, we just get together and get to talk with these other, you know, founders and we get to sort of share war stories and we get to, you know, ask advice, but it forces you to sort of, you know, hit certain milestones on a week by week basis. Yeah, that, I mean, I agree with all of that, of course. (laughs) Yeah, I, I don't know. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think this the whole YC, the whole Y Combinator model, all this stuff is, just makes total sense. And, um, you know, I, I can see why it works. Now, how, how many companies were in your class? Do you know exactly? 36, I think. God, grief. That is a ton. Um, 
of the 36, do you already get a sense of who are going to be successful or not? Are there, are, there, are there a few already, like a top five, that you think, oh, these five are, are, for, are sure things, and these bottom five, like, you know, we give them, like, I give them three months, <laughs> and they're done? Huh. Um, I mean, everyone has their opinion, and, and you have some sense of the companies that are doing better than the others, mm-hmm. but it's still a big unknown. Like I've heard stories that scribd they're huge now, but back when they were doing like Hominator, they just couldn't get any traction um, after demo day. And I think a few months went by before scribd pivoted into their current company they're working on and, and then they hit traction. So it's like, you never know. Right. And I guess it just comes up to the founders too, if they're willing to pivot, right? Because you, what you have, what you may be evaluating on uh, them on uh, either the technology or their business concept may be different three months if the founders are adaptive and committed to making something work. So then yeah, I guess like, it's a question of just like, what, which founders do you look at and go, yeah, this, this person's going to, this person's going to make it happen. It's well, you have a pretty good idea of that. And you also have a good idea on who's not as likely to stick it through by if they're losing morale and if they're not coming to the dinners towards the end and um, you have a good idea. Like some people were planning on dropping out of college and their startups not taking off and they lose morale and they stop showing up to YC events and you instantly know, Oh, those guys went back to college. So right. It's not like you, you got any confirmation on that. You could just like, I'll bet they're gone. Right. You already talked like that. We're not going to see these guys anymore. <laughs> um, so here's a question I think I probably should ask, even though it's I, I don't know. It's it's in some ways it's kind of a boring question, but I think it, some of our listeners might be curious. Is that you know there's that whole male female like how many are there any females? Why why aren't there more females in tech? And we talked a little bit about this in our first interview. So in the Y Combinator uh, class, this Y Combinator class, were there any other female? founders other than yourself yeah um i think there were two or three others no three others mm-hmm. did you give them dirty looks like <laughs> listen <laughs> i'm supposed to be the only female <laughs> phone no i thought it was really cool because i mean i liked all of them i i became mm-hmm. friends with all of them and um i guess we hadn't thought too much about that going through the program no, I mean that's that's a great that's a great thing. I'm I'm just kidding. Actually, I, I think that's that's great. And uh, it seems like um, it's just a curious thing. You know, you hear about. You know, we 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 went through this in the first, you know, uh, interview. So I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse. But um, that's kind of interesting. So no, so the it sounds like the female thing hasn't been too much of an issue for you, right? I mean, that you know you were a CS major at a, at a top school and. You said, and that, that seemed to go fine for you, right? I mean, because you read about how a lot of females don't feel comfortable in the CS world, not just not because of the subject itself so much as it just seems like not of that's mostly just guys, right? Yeah, I, I guess I never really thought about it as being a big deal, and whenever some other people bring it up, I just try to shrug it off because I mean it hasn't been a big deal, so why should it be a big deal now? Right. No, I think that's cool. No, and and what about your age too, right? Because again, the other thing aside from being female is that you're you just turned twenty, so you're still very young, I would imagine, compared to most of the entrepreneurs. Even though this is, even though I think YC found founders are known to be young. I mean, 
uh, Paul Graham has said as much that he doesn't really care. And I think to some degree might even prefer younger founders because they have less, they're able to take on more risk. Um, so what's the, the average age there is what, probably like what, 25, 27, 28, something like that? Um, something in the mid twenties. Um, it's also, I've never known it to be an issue. So I also still think to this day that it's not a big deal. Maybe I'm wrong, but I guess it can't hurt to shrug it off in my personal opinion. So, well, I think that, I think in life that probably works better is like, you just sort of, you know, some people naturally ignore it. Like you seem like you're just like naturally ignore it. Like it's not a big deal. Right. Like whether there are five, whether they, whether you're the only female in your in your CS major or there are ten others, it, it makes no difference to you. It seems like, and whether you're the youngest or not, makes no difference to you. And I guess some people probably have to force themselves not to get too focused on it and caught up on it because it's just a distraction. And in the end, you're right; it makes doesn't really make any difference. Um, yeah, it doesn't, and it's just really distracting if if you think about it. And like, it's funny because the thought. Like when you ask that question to me, I'm like, wait, I haven't actually thought about this like at all. So it kind of caught me off guard a little. Well, because I think if I, I guess if you had been thinking about a lot, then it you would been you would be thinking about it probably because you it was making you feel strange or awkward or or, or something, right? Something about it to make you feel good about it. So you're, you're thinking about it. But if you're not thinking about it, that's probably because it's not bothering you. Right? <laughs> it's not an issue. It's like, you ever talk to somebody who's like in a, in a bad relationship and they're always talking about it? Like I yeah. remember back to college. <laughs> it's like if someone, is, if, someone has, if someone is never talking about the relationship, it's probably great. Like you'd be like, so how's it going? What's up? They're like, oh, great. You're like, yeah, that's really boring to listen to. But yeah, it's a great relationship, <laughs> right? Because there's nothing to talk about. You know, it's like, but it's like there wasn't really fun to listen to are the really dysfunctional, screwed up relationships, the kind of stuff that people have in high school and in college and when they're in their early 20s when they're still, you know, figuring out themselves and everything. And, and it's just funny because that's the way it is, right? If there's something that's bothering you, you spend to think about it a lot and talk about it a lot, but it's not an issue. You don't talk about it. You don't think it just, you don't think about it. It's just not, it's like, well, what, I don't know. <laughs> not, a, not a big deal. Well, um, you know, uh, I think that's, I'm about out of questions, Justin, you got any, I think that I think that it's been a great interview and, um, I've actually really enjoyed taking a backseat role and listening to you interview Jessica, um, on today's show. So thanks a lot for doing that, Jason. And um, I, I would say that, uh, yeah, I think we've, we, we should probably uh, begin to wind things down. Yeah, well, Jessica, I just want to say that I am really impressed with what you've done. The fact that we interviewed you back when you guys were still struggling in school and now, you know, you're enjoying all of this sort of early success. It's just exciting. And uh, you know, when, I, when I saw you pop up on Hacker News article about you and TechCrunch, I was just like, yeah, you go, girl. That's <laughs> awesome. So I... Nice. You know, I, I you know I know Justin is feels the same way. But, you know, I wish you the best of luck, and uh, we're going to be following along, and uh, hopefully we can uh, catch up with you again sometime down the road and and see how things are going with you. Because I I mean my my money's on you. I think uh, I think you guys are going to be a success. I think the business makes a lot of sense. Um, it sounds like you guys have made a lot of progress with the product. You guys you know you've been able to raise money. It just sounds like everything's everything's working out. So I think it's going to be a. In fact, great if we had any money, we we'd invest. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. <laughs> I Thank want to <laughs> no, You know, it's funny. I was just thinking about talking about, I mentioned this to Justin, um, is that, you know, we've interviewed 
a number of interesting entrepreneurs. And I bet our, if, if that was like our portfolio of investments, we'd be doing pretty good about it now. That's right. <laughs> we could have you know what's back. pretty funny? Um, do you know Andrew Warner from Mixergy? Yeah. So I've been in touch with him and getting his feedback on our product. And he was one of the first people to say, I love what you're working on. Can I like give you guys some money? And we're like, wow, <laughs> like our first angel investor. All right. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. Oh, is he one of your investors? He was the first person to verbally commit to making an investment. All right. Well, all right, Andrew. Awesome. So, I, like, I, you never know. <laughs> I actually met Andrew once. He, uh, you know, he's, he, he's in L.A. And um, I, think I, connect, I think I emailed him just because he was in L.A. And, and, uh, and I ended up, he invited me to meet him at this event. And I met him briefly. He's a really nice guy. So, Such um, a nice guy. He's such a nice guy. He's a great guy. I listen to Mixer G all the time. And uh, um, yeah, it sounds like a great person to have uh, as an investor. That's, that's cool. So yeah, well, we're going to consider you, consider you part of the TechZing portfolio. Yay. <laughs> we're going to have a <laughs> virtual investment. So, you know, we, we, looked at, we looked back, we're like, yeah, yeah, Jessica, she's, uh, she's one of our investments. We may actually make any money off her, but uh, I just feel it's like, like fantasy investments, Jason. That's right. <laughs> fantasy, fantasy angel investing. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Well, so, hopefully, like I could come back in six months and say, "Yeah, we're doing much better." Because like every time, they're just a different set of challenges, and you never actually feel success. Even like I was talking to Drew Houston from Dropbox, and and I'm like, "Wow, well, doesn't it feel great to be where you are now?" And Drew told me that Dropbox is the way he thinks about his business is they're in like the World Series. Like it's great to be there, but like huge challenges lie ahead. So don't get too ca- get yeah don't get uh, too caught up in early successes because there's more to come. Yeah, right. yeah, you don't want to rest on your laurels, and it's it's early, 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 and that's absolutely right. But I don't think there's I don't think there's any um, there's any problem with taking a step back. And go all right, we've we've we've, we're, we've be proud of where you've gotten to already i think that's i think it's good to take a step back sometimes pat yourself on the back and go all right great you know because that gives you the confidence and 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 sort of the um i yeah i guess we'll say it just gives you the confidence to move ahead because you can look back and see what you've done already so yeah all right well jessica thanks so much for uh spending spending this valuable time i'm sure you guys are uh busy cranking today. <laughs> so I uh, really appreciate you taking the time to be with us on Texting again and we will definitely catch up with you um, on down the road. Cool. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Justin. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. <laughs> <laughs>